Hey, Whiskey Ringers, thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Before we jump into the interview with Colin Keegan of Santa Fe Spirits, just a few quick notes. If you haven't joined the Patreon community yet, please consider doing so. There has never been a better time than now. I've reworked the levels, and here are a few of the changes. Oh, by the way, it's patreon.com slash whiskey in my wedding ring with an E. That'll include the website and the podcast. First off, the $5 tier will have access to the new Patreon-only segment called Under the Influencer, where some of your favorite YouTubers, Instagrammers, podcasters, and more join me to talk about, well, really to bitch about, a topic that's under their skin in whiskey. This tier will also have priority access to upcoming barrel picks, including one coming up in partnership with the This Is My Bourbon podcast. Next up, there is a new $25 tier. This is really for people who just want to propel the pod and the website forward. There's only 10 spots. Uh, They'll have the same benefits as the $5 tier, plus write a first refusal to join me on on future barrel picks, access to my personal inventory of samples, and more. If you want to ask some questions about joining that tier before you actually join, feel free to get in touch with me, and I'll be happy to talk. You can still support on patreon for as little as a dollar a month if you just like to stay up to date with these changes and news about what we've got coming up and you can always upgrade or downgrade at your convenience next up there are three that's right three upcoming whiskey my wedding ring and whiskey ring podcast events i gotta say you know after you made the jack daniels events such a success and so much fun to host i had to follow it up so here's what's coming up the first one is an exclusive event only for Whiskey Ringers Facebook group members or to website subscribers. It is an advent calendar curated by me that includes 15 samples from 15 different producers and 14 different distilleries, two samples that have whiskey older than I am, and a special pour I promise you, you will not find anywhere else. As I said, it's only available to people in the Facebook group or to website subscribers. As of this recording, two of the 15 spots are already claimed. So make sure to grab yours today. Check your email. Uh, make sure you're part of the Facebook group for discount codes and insider access. You won't want to miss this one. And second, this covers two events. In August, I'm going to switch gears a little bit away from American whiskey. Hosting a two-part event, an introduction to Japanese whiskey. The first event on August 11th will focus on the beginnings of Japanese whiskey going back to the 17th century and through the founding of Japan's two titans, Suntory and Nika. The second, on August 18th, will focus on the new guard of Japanese whiskey makers and the evolutions of the old guard. Both are going to start at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time to accommodate folks in the mountain and western time zones. Uh, As always, they're going to be recorded so you'll have video afterwards, but if you can join live, even better. Finally, please do like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. It really helps the podcast move up the rankings. And take a look at the website for a new review, usually every day or every other day at most. Uh, You know, we're talking three to five reviews per week. Thanks for listening to that very long intro. Now here's Colin Keegan of Santa Fe Spirits. Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to another episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today, we're going all the way down to New Mexico. Thrilled to be joined by Colin Keegan, founder of Santa Fe Spirits. Colin, welcome. Thank you for having me, David. So, Colin, uh, you are in a 
pretty special category in many ways. You've you're number one, it's you're producing an American single malt, uh, which is hasn't really been dealt with too much in this podcast before. It's uh, definitely a topic I'm interested in. You're also in an area that I haven't really visited before at the podcast. Dabbled in Texas once or twice, but not really uh, the true Southwest. Uh, and above all that, you've also got your roles in uh, various councils and associations. Um, so, you know, a lot to get to in this episode, but uh, let's start with, let's start where everything started yeah. uh, and the origin story of, of Santa Fe spirits. Yeah. Well, once again, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we, uh, we're basically talking about American single malt, although as a craft distiller, we have a range of products, but we'll save that for some other podcast, you know, um, <laughs> We really walk and talk like a lot of classic craft distillers. Uh, we started 12 years ago up here in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Uh, I'll explain that. That's um, my wife and I moved here in 1992. You can probably tell by my accent, I'm from somewhere completely different, uh, Northern <laughs> England, Newcastle upon Tyne. But uh, that's the only tie back to really single malt that I ever had. Um, Never really drank much of it as a kid, but got a love of single malts as I progressed through my architecture career. I was an architect for, for 18 years here in Santa Fe and a few before back in England, etc. Um, Santa Fe is an eclectic place and really back to all our spirits, they reflect the region we're from. So again, we'll save all the other spirits, put them aside. But uh, for the single malt, we actually do a, uh, a mesquite smoke on a third of the grain. And I know you've tried them, David. If anybody's tried them, they'll know the sort of signature of the sort of smoky sweetness balanced with oak that Carl Keegan's known for. We can probably get into that a bit more later. Um, we've been very lucky to be distributed in 12 states. We have an online presence where you can go to our website and buy in 41 states. So we, again, like craft distillers, we're a small scrappy crew. We do all kinds of things. So we all do a little of everything. Small company. There's only eight people there. Um, two of those are part-time. Uh, we have gone through four expansions. As we do extra products, we need more space to expand and do different things. And, uh, um, yeah, that's that's it for the sort of history and the story. And lived in Santa Fe since '92 and still enjoying it. So uh, it, it's funny you mentioned being from. I think you said Newcastle upon Tyne. Yeah, Newcastle upon Tyne. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when I was when uh, we first met um, during a media event, I remember writing down in my notes. I was like trying to place this accent. <laughs> I, I, I studied I've lived in the US my whole life but I studied a bit of medieval history and particularly English history so oh, I got right. to hear a lot of the different accents and I remember writing down it's a mix of you know North London Yorkshire you know a little bit of a little bit of Edinburgh in there but mostly kind of center around um, yeah. Yorkshire. so when you said North England, I was like oh okay I got it you, you, you so, did well yeah <laughs> um, so you're uh so number one i mean uh you said santa fe is a very eclectic community 
And uh, you were an architect before starting Santa Fe Spirits in uh, about 2010. Mm -hmm. So uh, what drove the switch from an architecture career into the spirits industry? You know, again, I, I keep hearkening back to, you know, walking and talking like a lot of other craft distillers. I always think there's three ways to start a distillery. One is um, to have a lot of money that's just a little hobby. To have a little bit of money, which uh, was a be a category we threw ourselves into where you could afford a building in a still and you started making some great spirits. And then you thought after a few years, oh, we've got to start selling them. Um, another weird weirdism in our industry, but we'll get to that again later. And another way is to sort of just buy it from a, another supplier. Really wasn't the route we wanted to go. Um, we wanted to be sort of true to our roots here in Santa Fe. And so we are making everything. What really sparked off actually starting the distillery was I, uh, I designed a house working as an architect for a fellow in an apple orchard. The project fell apart. My wife and I had fallen in love with the land. You sort of, as an architect, you walk it and talk it. And sunrises and sunset, where does the wind blow so you can get the house located right? And uh, my wife actually agreed, yes, I think this would be a great place for us to live. So we bought the property from my client. And um, it's a, just a little four acre apple orchard. And we would have apple pickings in the fall, which turned into apple pickings and hard cider making, which turned into my wife not getting a car in the garage because it was 500 gallons of hard cider in the way. <laughs> and she said, get rid of it. Being a cheapskate like I am, I decided to uh, convert it to something more palatable for me, um, which was apple brandy. I managed to cobble together a still, talking to some nerdy brewers around here and figured it out and would started making, you know, batches of apple brandy once a year. Um, when the economy took a downturn, I upped my game in 2008, which is when the rest of the country went down. Santa Fe is a bit of a slow adopter. So it was 2009, 2010, before nobody needed an architect designing them, you know, a third home on a golf course. So uh, we played with the hobby a bit, bought a building, bought a still. It was before actually doing that, you know, you're spending some money. Oh, you must need a license for this. I realized, oh my goodness, I'm a moonshiner. I can't really do this. Um, as have a lot of people, it's funny how you, is a misconception you can distill if it's for yourself. You can't technically. Um, I wasn't selling it, but I was warned as soon as you start selling it, you're in trouble with the Taxation and Trade Bureau. So anyway, I got a license, got a still, got a building. And we really haven't looked back since then. Um, apart from as you're buying buildings and the stills and things, you're sort of investing some money. So you think, well, we better come up with a business plan. At which point we realized, you know what? Nobody really drinks apple brandy in any quantities. They cook with it a bit, but not often when it's seasonal. And I'd always, or I had said always, I had grown to love over the years, good single malt whiskeys and decided that's where we wanted to focus. Not really being business minded, uh, but I did know that you can't really make the cheapest liquor possible because the big guys can always do that cheaper and more efficient than you can. So you might as well go for the high end, which is what we did. So we started with a, a whiskey, um, made some of that and laid it down while we were playing with other products. The whiskey was aging. 
It took about five years to get the whiskey out. So it was 2015. And then we've come up with some more in the range there. So you mentioned uh, kind of two tangents I want to go down. Mm-hmm. The first one being uh, before before entering the whiskey sphere, when you're dealing with the brandy and um, you said that you reached out to a couple of people who were just selling in the area or who might know. So the first question I have is, you know, what stills, what kind of stills were you working with? <laughs> well, our first still was really, um, it was a beer keg, one of those 15 gallon beer kegs with um, the actual valve hacked off and uh, a stainless steel column placed on top of that, um, packed with copper packing. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, you can buy um, real water distillation, stainless steel pipes and stuff, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's that heat exchanger, which is going to be a stainless steel pipe within another pipe that is the cooling element. Or for those who think moonshining, it's that copper coil that gets placed in the barrel. It's, it's a version of that. The, what, what's inside that copper pipe, or in our case, the stainless, is the alcohol vapor. What makes it condense is the cold water on the outside. They either be in a barrel or in our case, a stainless steel tube within another. We can really start nerding out about, you know, knocking together your own still. So we, um, we were, I was playing around 15 gallons at a time. Anybody knows about distilling a charge. Actually, you couldn't fill it. It was about 10 gallons at a time. It's really going to make about one gallon of apple brandy. So that wasn't very efficient, but I didn't really play around too much. I took some classes with the Christian Carl folks and the, um, I forgot the other, Holstein, uh, Holstein still guys. I went on a lot of every single tour I could of every distillery I could. And I had a great year in 2010, actually nine and 10, just touring around the country, looking at distilleries because I was an unemployed architect and, uh, great time looked at all kinds of different stills and decided on a christian carl out of germany um really a specialized brandy stroke whiskey still um and we jumped from a cobbled together copper pot thing to really a very nice big still but i played and took classes and distilled on all kinds of other equipment and realized i didn't want to mess with stuff in the middle or try to make my own or fabricate them I'd heard all kinds of horror stories. Comical ones were the ones I'd heard. And since I've actually been in the industry, some horror stories about the dangers of no relief valves and stuff like that. So I was glad my linear architect training took me to the safe side. And we went for a very good, very safe still with all kinds of relief valves. This pressure builds up, which you really shouldn't have in distilling much pressure anywhere, really. Right. I can't argue. It's probably right to move, honestly. Yeah, yeah, it was a safe one, you know. Yeah. So uh, with this, with when you eventually got to the Christian Crawl, still, yeah. uh, is that still the one that you're using now? It is actually. We haven't changed the still in all these years. Um, it it works with the product range that we do. Um, we do use it to make gin as well. Anybody with any knowledge of distilling will know that you don't really want gin and whiskey mixing. We have a separate uh, botanicus, as we call it, or thumper, Mm. called a thumper because you're basically going to bubble hot 
uh, vodka vapor through that, and it rattles like those old school radiators used to when you pump steam through them. Um, we fill the still with vodka. It's a compounded gin, so we put the botanicals in a separate vessel. And our, um, uh, what do you call it, heat exchanger or condenser is a separate one from the whiskey one that we use. So really, no gin is touching the same vessels. Um, we, that was when we did get back in with the welding gear and a, a, a stainless welder who could uh, cobble together something that we, we have a good gin still going alongside it now. No, I, I enjoy gin from now, now and again. Yeah. We could talk about the gin for, for yeah. a minute if you want. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Well, our gin is, um, again, we decided we had to do something that really nobody else could really replicate or want to replicate. So all the botanicals in our gin are made, sorry, sourced, not made, sourced from within 60 miles of Santa Fe. So we have Choya cactus blossom. Those of you in the Southwest know Choya cactus. Osha roots, which is used in herbal teas for a grounding note. You always need a citrusy top note in gin, I believe, anyway. So we use Cascade hops, which you can actually grow locally. You can't grow citrus here because we get a decent-sized winter. Or Unfortunately, we didn't have this year, but we normally get a winter with snow. Um, so you can't grow citrus to add into the gin. Um, the real big note that we have is a sage-style gin. Um, and it, it's... It's a, a good sipping gin, as are a lot of the ones, mostly coming out of the craft world these days. You are seeing some of the big guys come up with some stuff. Ours is very botanical based and uh, falls right into what we're calling Western botanical style gin. Um, That's interesting. I'll, I'll definitely take a look at it. I, like I said, I, I enjoy, I'll try mostly anything at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really try vodkas for the most part. Uh, yeah. unless i get a really strong recommendation from somebody um but gins can be really interesting i love the locality that your gin and a lot of gins are focusing on now yeah it is something that's um a lot more regional than a, a lot of other uh spirits that are coming out you know vodka's goal is to be as pure and odorless and flavorless as mm-hmm. possible whiskey is as much about the cask aging and the grain use and places like New Mexico don't have their own, well, no grain growing of any scale and or malting houses. So our terroir is sort of imported for our whiskey. But for the gin, it definitely is home-based. You know, of course, the apple brand is Southwest apples. So there's a lot more tannins and um, oils and flavors that come in in a different way. Our apples are small, hard, and tart because we live in the high desert. So, right. and, and I mean... You do have the mesquite that's that's uh, yeah local to the area as well. The mesquite's local to the area, and actually, Breeze Malting House uh, do our um, smoking for us on the gin. Oh, sorry, <laughs> mixing spirits. Yeah, on the whiskey. Apologies. Um, they they use a you know an American Midwest grain, and uh, we ship. We did ship the chips up to them. Now they go direct from there chip maker i think it's a guy with a juniper tree and a chipper i think that's all it is really but it doesn't take many chips or smoke to really smoke the uh, the grain um, i don't know the quantities it's a proprietary um recipe that police have now cornered as they do with a lot of you know great recipes they're a great malting house to work with 
the majority mm. of our grain actually comes from uh, um, Shakopee up in Minnesota there, mm-hmm. from uh, BSG up there. Gotcha. Yeah, uh, yeah. Brees has come up in a couple of conversations uh, in terms of malting houses, and uh, they certainly have a you know great reputation for that. Uh, sorry, just one one more question on the still that just came to me. Yeah. That and then um, and then I want to go into uh, I have another topic that came off of that, but with uh, at least as far as as whiskey goes, you know, a big step forward was the introduction of, of copper. Mm-hmm. So you need that to really pull off all those sulfurous compounds. Yeah. Um, do you need the same thing for creating brandy? You do, actually. You know, it's a distilled vegetable, you know. Um, yeah, as I say vegetable, uh, it's grain in the case of the whiskey, and there's a lot of grain in the gin. Uh, you use typically a base for it. And um, anyway, that's, a, that's neither here nor there. But for the brandy, it's obviously a fruit. I didn't mean vegetable. It's a fruit. So it's, you know, it's their grown product and they will all produce sort of sulfurous compounds in the right quantities once you've fermented them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, of course, in brandies, the copper contact will pull some of the arsenic that you get in tiny quantities in the seeds as well. Um, and of course, you're distilling, so you're concentrating things. Even if it's a tiny quantity to start with, you don't want to concentrate arsenic in any form. So that will be left behind with a copper contact. It will pull the, you know, pull those, you know, quantities out. I'm, I, I had to ask, because I, in talking to distilleries now around the world, the only, the only base I think that I, I've heard of so far that does not require copper or that you shouldn't have some kind of copper in to pull those compounds is uh, rice whiskeys yeah. or rice distillates. But that's the only one. Everything else from whiskeys to rums to brandies, gins, they all need something wow. to pull off those compounds. Um, Definitely. Yeah. So we went into the still part of it. Uh, yeah. I want to explore a little more about asking the community or asking people around you. So as you know, I, I'm not that aware of, of the Southwest's kind of distilling community, as yeah. it were. I've learned the Texas one just in talking to a couple of guys and gals down there. But, um, you know, what does what does the community look like? And uh, what? Sorry, oh, yeah. I'm listening. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. It's getting um, a bit warm here. Sorry, I'm listening. <laughs> no, no, all good. Um, you know, so the, you know, what what does the New Mexico and or Southwest distilling community look like now? And what did it look like when you were starting up? Um, well, it, it's currently uh, healthy. I'll put it in, in that form, healthy. Um, when we started, we were the second craft distillery in New Mexico. And there was another fellow who had a craft distillery going in a place called White Rock, just below Los Alamos there. Um, unfortunately, they're no longer distilling. Uh, they're, they're still around and they're, they've gone back to their winemaking and I become, believe they've become chocolatiers. Go figure. But, um, you know, distilling's not for the faint of heart and not saying they're faint of heart, but it, it's a battle as we, we can. That's another whole podcast, distribution and sales and marketing and all that fun stuff. But, um, yeah, when we started, there was two of us and... <laughs> It, it was different um, back then, even though it was only 12 years ago. The, 
When I went to the state to apply for a license, they looked at me and said, no, no, you can't distill in New Mexico. I said, well, there's another distillery. So they went into the back office and there was lots of whispers. What's going on? Oh, yeah. Uh, we can't find the licensing paperwork. You have to go ask them how they did it. So I went to the other distillery. Um, it, it was one of the few least friendly uh, receptions I'd heard. I mean, the distilling industry is great and very friendly. And he said, I don't want to help you be a competitor of mine. You know, I mean, nice guy and we get on great now, but he, he was a bit shocked that somebody else wanted to do what he had thought he'd cornered the market. Anyway, so I went back to the state and he said, oh, yes, it's, it's a bit like a restaurant license because you're serving alcohol and making alcohol. So they gave me a restaurant license um, to set up a restaurant because it was the closest thing they could find. And as we went through it, they were scurrying around in the background, calling the federal government. This is from New Mexico, calling the federal government to ask what they should be asking for and what rules they should put in place. So when I got my federal license, it drove a lot of what the New Mexico license was based on, which was an, a weird way of going about it. But um, there's currently, I believe it's 22 active distilling licenses um, in New Mexico, and more than half of those, I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to guess about 15 plus is um, brewing distilling licenses. And that's driven primarily because a lot of people had breweries and they could sell local beers, they could sell wine as well, and they wanted to sell spirits as well. And they had to get a distilling license so we could get the reciprocity and sell spirits to each other. Um, it's helped us a lot. The brewers, the distillers, and the wine growers get on in a fair way in New Mexico. Um, sometimes when bills are up in the legislature, it really benefits the distillers and the winemakers. are just concerned that it'll downgrade all the um, exceptions that they've got, you know, tax deductions, etc. which it hasn't. It, it's all helped all of us. Um, I would say out of those 22 licenses, there's about 12 active producers. And um, we're happy to still sort of be one of the, from our perspective, stronger in the distribution realm of distilling, meaning that our model is to work with tasting rooms, which we have, we have two tasting rooms, but mostly about distribution across the US and in New Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the other distilleries, and again, I don't know the exact number, but more than half of them are based on what we're calling a tasting room model. So, you know, 70 or 80% of their sales come directly for out of their small tasting rooms. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe a bit of distribution here and there. But we all play nice. I did found the New Mexico Distillers Guild in 2015 uh, with... Um, Greg McAllister and uh, Brian Langwell, two other distillers at the time. By 15, there was about eight of us. Um, and we, we formed a little guild, invited other people. Some came, some didn't. And I'm very happy to say that it's grown and it's stronger than it ever has been. We just handed over the presidency of the guild to uh, another distillery, Scott Fule from the Taylor Garrett Distillery. But we'd had a really good president, um, young gal from uh, Tractor Brewing, Sky DeVore. And she sort of shepherded us through a lot of legislative issues and COVID 
etc etc and what we did and hand sanitizers and rules and regulations and all that kind of stuff so a, a great great gang we just had our meeting a couple of days ago it sounds like and i'm it's kind of an extra level of fascination because correct me if i'm wrong as far as i know uh new mexico as a region is not it doesn't have that that lengthy um distilling history no you know um especially defined in like the east and and in yeah. uh even honestly even in texas a little bit but especially the east and the, and the mm-hmm. north central u.s um what kind of you know was there any kind of history there of distilling um either especially pre-prohibition since that kind of wiped everything out yeah there's a um you know as there was across a whole lot of the u.s there was a lot of illicit distilling going on Mm -hmm. and um (laughs) it's quite easy to run and hide here in new mexico if you're up in the mountains because it's you know half the size of texas new mexico and there's only two million people live here so it's easy to distance yourself <laughs> when you're still up in the mountains uh you're right there really isn't a, a known history here not like kentucky or somewhere but um anybody who knows the southwest and cowboys etc will remember the name kit carson he was actually involved not himself distilling but with a lot of other people and uh kgb has uh, a product called Taos Lightning, which was the name given to the whiskey that was primarily out here in the Southwest, um, distilled very differently every time by multiple different people and multiple different stills. They know the history better than I do, but everybody called it Taos Lightning because it was they knew what it was and what it meant. Some of it was good, some of it was bad, some of it was aged, some of it wasn't. But now Taos Lightning have a bourbon out, which is doing quite fine for them, you know? They, which is called Taos Lightning. That's really the, the only history I know of apart from many, many people. And I get old gents who've been living here all their life who said, my granddad started this recipe in our shed. What do you think of this? And it's, it's basically moonshine. A lot of it we're trying. No heads or tails cuts or anything. And uh, yeah. <laughs> good old methanol flavor i've got to be there. polite about how i word that yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, who doesn't love a little little methanol kick in little there? methanol <laughs> when you yeah. with your breakfast yeah yeah so in uh you know in some ways it's it must be uh it must be freeing and forgive me if i'm projecting this but it must be freeing in the sense that the region doesn't have this distilling history because then you can really create whatever yeah. profile you want it to. No, I, I would say so. I mean, uh, I can only really speak to Santa Fe spirits, but our gin really came out of what can we do with the plants around us? We're in a high desert. There's not many plants around us. It's not like a lot of areas which have X, Y, and Z, you know, plants here, there, and everywhere. Um, so we only have five botanicals in it. Um, you know, in the case of whiskey, we, we do bring grain in because we don't have large grain facilities here and or malting houses. Um, but a lot of people across the state have tried various different things. There's a guy making a pinion rum, uh, a pine nut rum. And um, 
there's some people doing some blue agave spirits, of course, being in the Southwest, right across the border from Mexico. But he says, oh, tequila, that's what we should be drinking here. Um, as we all know, you can't sell, can't make, sorry, tequila here anywhere but Jalisco, Mexico. Mm-hmm. So you can make a blue agave spirit, but that's quite a hard sell when somebody wants tequila. It is the same liquor, but it takes a bit of explaining. There's a lot of that around here. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people making some vodkas with some really esoteric, great flavors. Green chili, of course. But I think a lot of people all over the country have tried green chili. But um, there's some quite creative things going on with the distillers around us. I think in a couple of few years in New Mexico, you'll, you'll see, you know, a New Mexico whiskey shelf, at least. It won't be a single malt shelf like what, what I make. But a lot of people are making barley and just a general wheat whiskey and things like that. They're kind of fun. Yeah, it's it's a blank canvas. It's great to yeah, it is. be able to build off of. Um, and I would definitely going to look up that pine nut rum. I love yeah. pine nuts and anything flavored pine yeah. nuts. Yeah. Um, so you you mentioned a couple of times, and, and so just then your very unique location. Yeah. Um, if I remember correctly, you are seven thousand feet. Yeah. Above sea level, so as you said, high desert. Um, I'm, you know, go as deep as you want into you know, <laughs> wh- what does that mean for, for distillation, for, I mean, for aging, for fermentation, like the entire yeah. process must be different. It um, makes quite a few differences. Really, it's more to do with our elevation than, our, our, uh, than it is our latitude or longitude, whichever way you look at it, latitude, I should say. Um with 7,000 feet and being in the high desert, we get very little humidity and the air is thinner. So our boiling temperatures are different. You know, they're lower. Things boil at a lower temperature here, which means you sometimes don't get it up to heat. You can't keep forcing it. Um, we have a, a small, well, by distillery size, small. It's a one and a quarter million BTU boiler you know, to generate the heat but we only get about 780 BTU out of it, 780,000 BTU out of it, because of the pressure is so low that we need a lot more pressure in there. I mean, a lot more strength basically in the uh, boiler to get that working. Um, The biggest difference I think would be is in our aging, in that we put our whiskey in around, around 116, 118 proof, into our casks and um, when we pull it out, it goes up in proof. You'll find a lot of people in the drier areas, the proof will go up. Alcohol being asorbic wants to absorb the moisture from around it, mm-hmm. as well as off gas, the higher, more volatile alcohols. And that means it's gonna go down in proof when there is moisture around to absorb, but we don't have any. so. We're pulling it out of the casks in the typically the low 20s, 120s, 120 to 124. We have had some where we've left it longer ago up into the 130 proof range. Um, in that process, a lot of those sharper, nastier alcohols will evaporate, which means we, uh, we believe, and a lot of other people agree with us, 
that after a minimum of three years, we're able to get a good enough flavor profile to, you know, start bottling it. So nothing leaves our rickhouses less than three years old, uh, typically about four, because we think it does help in the flavor profile of all the samples we pull. Um, well, I was going to say something else about aging there. So the casks are drying out a bit, you know, I mean, there's no moisture on the outside of them because we just don't have it in the air. We've tried heating and humidifying our rickhouses. This year will be the first year we're going to have a whole year without heat and humidity pumped in there. We don't need heat in the summer. They can get up into the 90s quite easily here. But in the winter, you can have, you know, weeks of below freezing. So uh, we're going to let it just do its thing. Um, I talked to, you know, the Balcones folks in Texas, the Laws Whiskey House folks up in Colorado and, you know, um, all the rest of it, um, Leopold Brothers, etc. all on how they age and they don't pump heat and humidity in. They just let the angels take whatever share they need, which is high. We're averaging at the moment 12%. We think now we've cut the heat and humidity off, it's going to be a bit higher because it, those barrels are going to breathe a bit more. Right, and the right. staves where we are with lack of, with the high temperatures basically and the lack of humidity, those staves are wanting to just dry out, you know, unless you can keep them wet. And of course, you can't top the casks off to do so. So it, um, it does make a significant difference being at 7,000 feet. And I mean, the 12% angel share is remarkable. It's, I mean, yeah. it's comparable to, you know, height of Kentucky summer or even, yeah, probably even higher than that. It's more comparable, I would say, to the aging in India. Yes, it so is. That I'm, that like a, those guys have. East India Asian, yeah, aging, yeah. Yeah, which is, it's fascinating because it's not, it's not as um, blatantly hot. Yeah. But it, but it is so dry that it just, so when you're, uh, let's say you have a barrel at close to four years, four years yeah. or so, um, normally at a 53 gallon barrel, you're pulling, you know, you'd pull maybe 250 bottles worth out or so. Um, what, do, what do your yields look like after that kind of angel share? The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Impex imports premium and rare whiskey, gin, rum, mezcals, liqueurs, and cordials from all over the world, from Scotland to Japan to Israel, Belgium, and Wales. Whether it's Kilhoman, Pandaren, Portiskeg, Glenallachy, Ohishi, Fukano, M&H, Ardnamurkin, Black Tot, and more, there's guaranteed to be something in the Impex portfolio you'll love. Impex also oversees some of the most prestigious independent bottlers in the game, including Single Malts of Scotland, Single Cast Nation, Adelphi Selection, and its own Impex collection. Take a look at their site, impexbev.com, or reach out if you're curious about their offerings. I'm proud to have many of their bottles on my shelves and love sharing them with friends whenever I can. Thank you to Sam and to the team for joining the Whiskering Podcast as guest and sponsor. Well, what we, we bottle at uh, 92 proof, typically with our whiskey. We've got some others that come in a bit higher. But with that and the whiskey gaining in proof as it's going in, it's around 120. By the time we proof down, 
we are actually getting about 230 to 240 bottles out. So even though our angel share is high with the proof going up, mm. um, it, it's not as massive a loss as it could be. If our proof was going down and ending up around the 100 mark, we really would be losing a lot of whiskey, you know? Right. right. So I'm, th- I'm thinking um, for, I'm, I'm looking at a, uh, I think it's a single barrel. Yeah, um, single barrel, the green, uh, yeah, the green cast strength, yeah. hundred eighteen, yeah, yes. Um, so for you know, for one of those barrels, let's say where it's you know it's not proof down at all, it's um, yeah, straight out. Is that going to be closer to like a maybe two hundred bottle yeah. or so? That's about where we are. We're expecting two hundred bottles out of that, uh, and sometimes less. I mean, it, it depends. The, the green level you were mentioning is what we call our single cask release. Mm-hmm. And it's single cask, uh, cask strength. Although back when we put the labels on those, the TTB didn't allow you to handwrite the proof in. Mm-hmm. So we had to have the labels made with the proof. And we knew 118 was safe. So we sometimes proof that down. Sometimes it's right at that mark, but very rarely. We either have to, if it's below that, we can't use it, of course. But uh if it's coming at 122 or something like that, we proof down to the 118 mark. And yeah, we're, we're going to get 100 and, between 180 and 200 bottles out of that, which is not a lot for Casper. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, Hence the higher price point. <laughs> well, that's that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have no problem paying more for, for something that's barrel proof or stronger yeah. proof. It makes total sense um, to me. I agree. Um, but it, even coming down from, let's say the low 120s to 118 proof for for this product as it stands right now, where you yeah. have to be at 118 proof as long as you're using those labels. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's still you're not adding a lot of water to that though. No, it, you know, considering the, the size of the barrel and, and how many proof points are, it's really not that much. Right, you're adding. it's not really too much. It's just, it's just a little bit. We have to do it slowly, of course. You don't want the saponification, the sort of soapiness that can come if you just chug the water straight in. But uh, to, typically, to proof one of those casks, you're adding about half a gallon a day for a few weeks, depending on exactly where it's coming out, you know. But yeah, there's not really too much water to go into there. And we just use, we're, we're not. Um, using water to flavor and most people in the u.s don't use the water as a flavoring component not like the scots do with the sort of peatiness that you get in their water ours is just coming straight off an ro system reverse osmosis there and i want to take a, a detour just for a second because yeah that saponification note i heard you mention that on um on bourbon blogs podcast yeah. uh, in 2020 and it was the first i had heard of it i heard oh. of the slow you know the slow proofing down methods but yeah. i never heard that you know dumping the water in all at once causes that uh, do you can you explain why that happens or what's happening in that process um i'm really not an expert in i mean that those listening can hear that i i know how to distill i've done plenty of distilling I have my head distiller really work on the sciencey end of things these days is a lot better than I am. However, when you dump the water in immediately, the saponification is there's a lot of oils 
and a lot of other compounds in your whiskey, which you really want for flavor. Mm-hmm. If you dump all the water in once, it tends to sort of force them to glob together and it'll f- change the flavor profile and make it have a sort of soapy-ish finish on it. Um, so you, you do need to just add a little bit of water, mix it in, let it blend and do its thing, let it settle. You can When we do full batches of Cole Keegan, it's 15 casks at a time, and we add about a gallon a day. Um, and that typically can take about two months to, to age down. Um, so we do plan ahead accordingly for that, you know. But it, it, it's basically, it's shocking the whiskey, and um, it, it will make the, the other compounds sort of glob together and give off different flavor profiles. I'm, I'm visualizing this, and I think the the best uh, comparison would be the uh, you know flocculation. But yeah, flocculation um, is a good yeah. So uh, there, I don't want to get to the argument of whether nor not the chill filtering is good or bad. Yeah, I'm firmly on the side of you know non chill filtering whenever yeah. possible. But um, but the idea being that when you add the temperature and you shock the whiskey or the spirit with the water or with the uh, the ice cube rather dropping that temperature it's causing everything to glob together so it might not change the flavor for some people in that but on a larger scale that's effectively what's happening if you dump all the water in at yeah. once effectively you change you're shocking the whiskey into the molecule to try and to decide you know right, what structure right. they want to build you know right if they want to join the water if they want to leave the alcohol yeah. If they want to, yeah um but yeah i that was definitely a point that i wanted to go into because i it was just one of those things that i heard you mention and it was like that's, that's yeah. very new. <laughs> um, cool. So, uh, in in terms of the the cast strength bottling, um, yeah. again, right now at one eighteen, um, how long do you think it'll be before you're able to go to the handwritten proofs? You're gonna giggle, giggle when I tell you this, and it gives you an indication of how small we are when we run out of those labels. <laughs> we bought ten thousand of them, and we're slowly working our way down. Um, we have an application into the TTB to change that and take the proof off so we can handwrite it in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be probably next year when we can go up and down a bit, um, which will give my distillers a lot more fun instead of just saying, okay, well, it tastes great straight out of the cask in 120s. What is it like at 118? They're going to start saying it's really nice at 122, let's say, Oh no, I think it's better at 108, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, as every distillery does, taste, taste, taste. You know, every morning there'll be about four tastes to have. My belief is you really can't do too many. I mean, I'm not knocking judges. They're, they've got a hell of a task. And they're better trained to trace, you know, eight, 10, 12 at a time and then get up and walk around the room and do it again, you know. But, um, it's uh we, we do about four each morning our distiller puts them out we'll taste them it varies and we have as many people in as we can from distillers to our salespeople to me to you know bartenders etc what do you think oh i get these notes i get those notes um and when we're looking at that we're primarily looking to put straight into what we call the orange label the standard flagship called keegan um 
And it's like, oh, this one's got some real strong smoky notes. Okay, well, that, that we can use for the smoky end of the Colkegan. This has got some caramel notes. We can use it for that in the Colkegan. My goodness, this one's got a nice balance of everything. That's a green label. And now we can start playing with proof. And that's a good entry point into going through the, uh, the lineup. Um, as you said, you have other spirits as well, including the gin, which again, I'm yeah. going to try at some point. But uh, the main thing that, you know, with the Whiskey Ring podcast, we can talk about whiskey. So the core Cole Keegan's the orange label. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, remarkably clear for what it is. It's single malt whiskey uh, with the E, which we'll get to in a second. Yeah. Uh, distilled in Santa Fe, American white oak casks or barrels, excuse me. Still in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Got the batch number, the barrel, the uh, it'll be a batch number, yeah, the batch in the bottom yeah. on there. Um, and at 92 proof. And uh, it's, I, you know, whenever trying a new brand, I always recommend people start with the basic, start with the core first because you want to know what the profile is, of course. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and through the four that I have, so I have the, the orange label 92 proof, the core, uh, the apple brandy finished. Yeah. The um, single barrel cast strength. Yep. And then the PX finished, uh, all of which I enjoyed. And I'll say that right up front. I really did. Uh, and each had a very different facet to it. So with the orange label, I was somewhat surprised that the orange label to me had the strongest uh, smoke character to it. Yes. Uh, and it's probably why it's a good way to start you know, again, start with the first thing on the shelf, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was the clearest flavor profile of that 30% mesquite in there. Um, Smokiness, uh, very different from, from Isla. Yes. Very much more the wood smoke kind of aspect to it. Um, Listeners know I'm, I'm getting my way. I'm working my way through Isla. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am definitely much more of a either Brooklady or uh, Kalilo fan mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, Lafroy. I can kind of get if it's really heavily finished. Otherwise, yeah. it's just yeah. too, it's too iodine for medicinal yeah. for me. Um, but anyway, that's a, a tangent. I, I mentioned that only because I remember you saying that your favorite uh, from that area was Ardbeg. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, which it's, it's fine. That's kind of in the middle for me in terms of the flavor profiles of, of what I like. Yeah. But uh, anyway, getting back to the Kogi yeah. spirits. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it had the strongest smoke flavor and it was very wood smoky and being next to a fire where it's your burning mesquite wood. Uh, and I didn't realize this until you said it uh, at, at our previous event, which was that mesquite is in the juniper family. Yeah. Um, and it's one of only two woods that are uh, local or native to to your area. Definitely, yeah. Um, so that was so it was really between the mesquite or the pinon trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we tried pinon, and um, for those of you who've had pinon fires, they smell wonderful. It really is a great smelling wood to have on a fire, and some of them, which is rare because we don't have a lot of moisture, which would create a lot more sap. Sometimes you get a lot of knottiness in, in, in the pine because they grow so slowly 
They, mm -hmm. They're not like big oaks that go up, you know, 80 feet in the air, where the average tree is about 25 to 30 feet tall. That's it. They stop there. Um, but when we tried pinon, because that's more classed as the classic tree of New Mexico, juniper to a lot of people is more weed-like. They, they don't like that tree as much. But um, when we tried distilling the, the pinon, whatever the pine wood, it, um, we got the sort of acrid tar-like smell, uh, taste at the back of your throat. So we were concentrating that rather than <laughs> blending it to make a nice whiskey. So the pinon didn't really work. So we pushed onto the juniper and um, that's worked. And I think we, we didn't really intend to be sort of the, the barbecue-esque, mesquite barbecue-esque notes that you, you get in that. It's not like you're tasting meat or, you know, barbecue sauce or anything on our whiskey, but you, you do get the smoke, which really brings in a lot of uh, thinking about barbecues and fun and, you know, outdoors in the mountains here. It definitely had my, my mouth watering of, like you said, it's not eating the rib kind of thing. It's more yeah. walking past the smoker. Is there? Exactly. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Walking past the smoker. Yeah. And that's and just it, a it, delicious the, smell. No, you, you mentioned also the smoke's a little different. I mean, this is a smoked barley from a tree as opposed to from peat which is the, the dirt it's the ground you know i mean it's a lot of vegetable matter in there but it is a from my perspective a stronger flavor i do really like it i mean i do like it in an art bag now and then but um you know for us it, it works well to have it in the trees so to speak <laughs> sure and I, I think in many ways it's uh it's makes it more accessible yeah is if again i didn't grow up in in um england and and, and scotland and, and the isles but the sense that i get and maybe it's an overgeneralization is that you kind of understand that peatiness whether it's straight from an art bag the freud mm -hmm. style or any of the other styles of peat that are out there um but you kind of get used to it as a as just that's the the profile yeah, in one way or another, uh, and for again overgeneralizing an American drinker who's looking to move from a bourbon or a rye into uh, a single malt, um, that that note of peat can be very difficult to kind of get through at first. Yes, yeah. Um, even in some with more mild peat like uh i got into it through highland park that was the first way i was able okay. to get through the peat yeah <laughs> um and uh then i kind of worked my way up from there um but it's very unfamiliar you know we don't have peated bourbons for the most part like king's county has a peated bourbon but we can pull them out because it's so unique yeah um, and we don't have peated bourbon we don't really have smoked bourbons or rye. it's it's very different so but on the other hand, a mesquite smoke um, is familiar yeah. to, to most of the country because of that barbecue element, because of the wood fire, campfire kind of element. So if you pair that with a um, you know very full body whiskey, especially for 92 proof, I, I really, I thought the, the mouthfeel on it was remarkable, uh, but with a very familiar flavor, it's a great way for for american drinkers to understand that okay there are single malts that i can enjoy and yeah and like it it is unfortunate when 
both for all single malts, American single malts, Scottish single malts, Irish, etc. When you say single malt, people have been scared off by that PT, you know, everybody will go for Lafoyg and Lagavulin, which are great whiskies in their own way, but do take, it's a severe entry point, let's put it that <laughs> way. There, if I mean, if you taste some of the Dalwinnies, Balvenies, that's a very soft spirit from Scotland there, if you're doing that. And a lot of the American single malts are very soft. I mean, all my compadres in this business, less of them have a smoky whiskey. So you, single malt is um, hopefully slowly getting past that. Oh, I can't do single malts. I stick with bourbons. It's nice and smooth and sweet. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of good, smooth, sweet single malts. Ours is in the smokier end. Um, which we like, but it, there's still, I think you'd agree, there's a sweetness that comes through in the background that I think mm-hmm. plays well with the with the smokiness, and it's not overpowering. And it, again, I'm not knocking Lafoyga Lagavulin. That is smoke first. Um, ours is very toned down, and with aging two-thirds in used oak to help the smoke, but a third of what goes into our finished blends is always from new oak too, because mm-hmm. that will push the oak forward as you would in a bourbon, and it helps tone down the smoke as well. And uh, that's how all our whiskeys start, one of those three. Absolutely. So with the orange label and the uh, green label, so the cor- yeah. the single malt and the cast strength, respectively, yeah, uh, you definitely get more of that smoky flavor. In, in terms of the other two that I want to hit on, yeah. the apple brandy finish and PX finish, uh, the... The smoke is is quite turned down yeah. in uh, in favor of matching those flavors together, and the apple brandy, of course, makes. I mean, both of them make sense in their own way. Yes. But the apple brandy makes sense because you have the orchard. You yeah. were making the brandy before the whiskey entered the picture, um, and uh, so describe the process by which you take the Colkegan whiskey and then finish it in those apple brandy barrels? Yeah, what we do for both the um, apple brandy cask finish, and we call it the PX finish, which is Pedro Jimenez sherry cask finished. Um, In the case of the apple brandy, we will blend the next batch of Carl Keegan up to 22 now, I believe, Mm -hmm. uh, 15 casks at a time, and start proofing, and somewhere around the 100 mark, higher than the 92, we pull off a few hundred gallons, like probably 200 gallons, and push back into 25-gallon apple brandy cask. It will lay down eight at a time, give or take. Mm-hmm. What we do is what's called a wet empty, meaning we have the whiskey ready. We empty the apple brandy, turn the cask back upright so the, the bunghole is up, mm-hmm. and then pour the whiskey straight in. So there's a lot of apple brandy still sloshing around in that barrel coming out of the staves, no matter how hard you try with the char that's in there and it gets caught in the grain and the wood and all the rest of it. Mm. And there's at least two gallons out of the 25 that are apple brandy. Now it's definitely made in the same way, but that oak cask has only aged apple brandy for about a year and it was new oak to start. So it's still got plenty of that oak essence in the cask. So what you're getting is the Colkegan whiskey with the level of smoke that we like, but then is going to have an extra year of aging 
in a once used apple brandy cask that's only been lightly used. I mean, you know, a year is not very long for aging. It doesn't pull out everything from the cask. So it has more oak and it has apple brandy as a back note to it. Weirdly enough, our apple brandy is dry. It's a Calvados style. So we don't add sugar. So it's not a sweet brandy. But those apple notes seem to pull up a sweetness within the whiskey. Um, my vocabulary is failing me here. There, there's words for that, <laughs> that, that that will help a lot more for our literary types. But it so for us, we say it sort of pushes it. It's not a bourbon, closer to a bourbon. It's still 100% malted barley with some apple brandy in there too because of the higher oak and the slightly sweeter finish on it, both of which pull that smoke way down. So that's the apple brandy finish. Uh, the PX or the Pedro Jimenez finish is really the same process. We pull you know, some from the next batch of Col Keegan when it's ready around the, well, actually we keep it a little higher than 100. Is we make sure it's closer to 103, 105 that we then put into Pedro Jimenez sherry casks. However, by the time they get here from Portugal, we buy them from a broker, our, our um, suppliers, Kelvin Cooperage. Okay. And they do a great job of bringing in multiple casks from elsewhere. They make the new oak for us and they get us the once used bourbon casks. I love to push our suppliers. They, they deserve everything they can get, you know. They're struggling with supply and demand issues like where everybody is these days, as much as we are. We seem to be the end of the chain. We feel like we got it worse, but they've got some horror stories too. Kelvin was uh, an early guest on this podcast, I think episode oh, they 16 were. or oh, so, great. so. Yeah, Kelvin's yeah. Good, good folks. They, uh, Brittany is who we deal with a lot. But um, so those Pedro Jimenez sherry casks, we actually uh, recharge with two cases of Pedro Jimenez sherry. We pour in there and leave in there. Um, so we've got um, a 60 gallon, because sherry butts are slightly bigger than the 53s for whiskeys, um, sherry cask. And, you know, we put it in, slosh it around, pump some steam in behind it to force it into the oak staves and then pull out some of it. But um, then we fill it full of whiskey and then leave it for another year. So that's going to be... On the sweeter end, because there's a sherry back note to it, mm -hmm. and um, not as oaky, because that Pedro Jimenez sherry cask is aged sherry. I don't know exactly how long for, but definitely years. You can tell by looking at the cask that it, it's been through the wars, you know, as has uh, any old cask, really. Um, thrown into our rickhouse, so it's at high altitude, the same, you know, barometric pressure changes that we've got. And um, just, you know, aging well. Um, that's going to be at the sweeter end, and that sherry really does help pull the smoke down. It's still there for the discerning palate, but it's definitely pulled down quite a chunk. It is. And I mean, again, I, I really enjoyed all four of these products. Uh, the finished ones in particular, the apple came off quite <clears throat> creamy, almost custardy. Creamy. Yes. Um, the oak was, it was not woody, but it was certainly more heavily oaked as you mm -hmm. pointed out. Um, and this will be in uh, tasting notes that I'll post along with this episode. And uh, as you also said, the apple brandy is Calvado style. It's not too sweet. So it's not sugaring 
the whiskey. Yeah. Um, it's really adding a roundness and uh, really accentuating the mouthfeel, which as people have pointed out to me is my number one determinant of whether I like something or not. That's so, um, and then with the PX one, it's uh, that I think was the closest to what I would say uh, would be like an Isla sherry finish or really honestly sherry um <clears throat> sherry matured if, if it was compared but yeah um i tasting it blind i think you could easily pass that as any of the core isla distillery yes um you know with the sherry finish on there yeah. uh, as it px uh if you try px on its own it's it's almost syrupy in terms of yeah. how sweet it is but uh, in terms of uh, finishing, it really works well. And the smoke stays around just long enough to yeah. keep it from going desserty. Yes. Know. No, I, I agree. That's a good description. You've done a great job yeah. there. Thank you. Thank you. I, thank you for putting out it. I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed with it. So, um, I, so I am cognizant of time. I know we're uh, at the top of the hour. Okay. Um, if it's all right with you, I want to just take a couple of minutes to talk about your roles and what you've been doing at uh, – your various associations, specifically oh, yeah. mm-hmm. the American Spingle Malt Whiskey uh, Commission. Commission? Committee? Commission. Actually, Commission. yeah. It's yeah. quite a mouthful. Um, you shouldn't let a bunch of guys get into a room with whiskey on a shelf behind them. They'll <laughs> rush through the meeting and give it any old name to get back to drinking whiskey together. No, so we, um, there's like six of six distilleries, a few other people around, met. Actually, uh, anybody from Chicago knows Binnie's in the, the flagship of Binnie's in the the water tower that they have at the back there. Uh, one snowy day at an American Craft, American Craft Spirits Association convention, we all sort of took a sidebar out for an afternoon. And we were trying to form, um, you know, a collective group, which we ended up calling the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission, um, to start to delineate the category Mm-hmm. Um, I will say led heavily by uh, both Matt Hoffman and Steve Hawley from Westwood um, mm-hmm. Distilling, Westland Distilling, sorry, Westwood, right. another favor of my, another <laughs> friend of mine, Christian and Tom, but um, Westland Distillery. Um, and they sort of gathered us all together. And we, we thought we'd be there for hours trying to hash out rules and regs and all the rest of it. Literally within about an hour, we said, yep, it's a great idea. Let's go in. We're all in on this. Let's see what we can do. Um, And again, Steve did really lead the charge. I am a founding board member for that, um, as are a lot of the other single members. There's 12 of us on the committee. We have 92 members now. And the goal of the commission is primarily at this moment to get Taxation and Trade Bureau, the TTB, the federal government, recognition for the category. Um, it's We put, let's call them guardrails on what we think American single malt should be. And it's up for public discussion. And hopefully within, let's say, weeks, maybe months, the federal government will um, send down their ruling. Um, it's been with them... Um, over six years now but the federal government doesn't move that fast they have had covid they have had and other things take priorities depending on who's in power at the time and what have you you know Mm -hmm. 
changing the top seats and stuff like that. But anyway, um, the the guidelines are very loose. We're not trying to be the Scottish Whiskey Association, the SWA, where they have fairly tight restrictions. We're not trying to be like bourbon and they're very tight restrictions on, you know, New American Oak, 51% corn or more than 50% corn, minimum two years, et cetera. We're trying to give some breadth to the category so people can play with it. Um, mine's a good example. I age in new and used oak and I mesquite smoke a third of my grain. I still fit within the American single malt category. In Scotland, that would be different, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we don't stipulate all American grain. We want people to be able to sort of try different things. If they want to bring peated whiskey in, oh, sorry, peated um, water in and or peat from Scotland and do it. Now, America has plenty of its own peat, which I learned recently. I didn't know we had peat over here, but Same places here. like Oregon are damp and has plenty of peat moss out there. Yeah. So the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission is a, an inclusive group, not an exclusive group. We want to bring people in and educate people um i was at a talk with them just 10 days ago actually up in colorado and uh promoting what the commission does and how we do it um there were seven of us on that panel and we'll be doing talks all around the country um from depending on what the perspective is we do a lot of blind tasting and people are very surprised in just the range of what what you can taste like people say oh scottish whiskeys have got you know, five different areas and different varieties within. Mm-hmm. America's a pretty big country yeah. <laughs> and we've got some different regionality. So I'll jump from there because, you know, being cognizant of time, mm-hmm. um, I'm still a board member of American Craft Spirits Association, which is the only member-driven trade organization for all spirits. Um, American Single Malt, obviously being just for single malts. Um, we partner well with the other associations, American Distilling Institute and Discus, Distilled Spirits Council. Um, but our goal is really to advocate, educate and promote all craft spirits for all craft spirit members. Um, we work heavily with the guilds in all states. Um, ACSA, as its acronym is, uh, teamed up with Discus and was very successful in getting the federal excise tax reduction. So we now have parity with wine and beer. So we pay uh, an 80% reduction on the first 300,000 gallons, which would include the 98% of craft spirits producers. Um, Once they get above that, it's not so much craft spirits. Um, We're currently working on direct to consumer um, issues uh, with different guilds in different states, state by state, helping California do their thing. Um, they've got two guilds in California with differing views on whether it should be open to everybody or whether it should be open to just craft spirits producers. Mm. And it depends which legislators are talking to in Washington. Um, it should be open to everybody. Or we don't need to give the big guys any more hands, you know, Diageo has all the money in the world. Why would we help them with, uh, you know, direct to consumer shipping? So there's differing views on it. Um, we're basically ACSA is following along with the Granholm clauses, which should take another whole podcast to explain, but working hard to really advocate 
for craft spirits producers. Um, it was a shock to me joining the industry how much more might an association has over single people. Mm-hmm. It was news to me, but it makes a lot of sense. The you know the government, whether it's state or federal, would rather talk to a group together, not single individual people, because that takes forever, you know. And mm-hmm. I, I they have time constraints too. So um, we have an executive director who um, Margie, who's doing a fantastic job with the guild, and our current president is uh, Becky from Katokan Creek. If you know your whiskies. She's doing a wonderful job there too. We've just transitioned to um, our executive board with, you know, leading the board is all female for the first time ever, which we think is a good feather in our cap. And um, I can't really miss out talking about the Step Up program, which the board started and really launched last year, which is um, to include people in the craft distilling world um, from diverse backgrounds, be it male, female, black, white, green, whatever you want, you know, we want everybody in involved. Um, we tend to walk and talk a bit like I look here, you know, <laughs> middle-aged white men, and we think it's we're stronger with more diversity, um, as I think everybody should be, you know. Um, and that's really the, the vision of those two associations and, uh, you know, that I, I'm with. And both of them are really taking leaps and bounds forward to take us into the future. Discus is really helping out in a great deal. They're working a lot with the small guys too, um, building membership with uh, craft distillers. They, they have a, you know, obviously their board's made up of all the, the big producers, um, but uh, they have a lot of lobbying power based in Washington there. And ADI, you know, is um, is really a marketing outfit. I mean, they're, they're not a trade organization, but they uh, they still promote and do some great stuff for craft distillers as well. Proud to be a member of such a big group. Um, it is something we all pride ourselves on. We play nicely in the same sandpit. It sounds that way. And uh, two, I believe two episodes before this one airs will be I just spoke to Chris Wonger the other day. Oh, you did? Oh, okay. Week. Chris is a and, great guy, yeah. And I was asking about this, about uh, American Single Malt ASM becoming a formal category. And I made sure I wanted to circle around with you to, yeah. uh, to talk about it. And that's why I made sure to bring it up. Um, I know recently there was uh, a letter sent to the TTB yeah. to help. And it is amazing that after six years, we could hear within weeks or months whether... It becomes a category. I mean, yeah, knock knock wood, of course. Yes. Um, and because I remember again looking at Bourbon Blogs podcast, and that was in June 2020. Yeah. You said the TTV was considering categorization then, and I heard that as <laughs> like, oh, it's been about two years. I wonder how much longer in the yeah. day, six years. <laughs> oh man, that is rough. But um, anyway, so yeah, it's uh, it's a challenge. Um the federal government just talks in a different language to us. They're great folks when you actually stop and talk to the humans that mm. do this, but they have such um, a difficult task ahead. I, I will say, as a craft distiller in the 12 years, they have done made leaps and bounds forward, pushed by ACSA, Discus, et cetera, et cetera. 
to make it easier for us. Um, not that we need it to be easy in business. There's plenty of challenges, but they've got more people reading labels. They turn around times better. They're more communicative. They're entertaining, you know, American craft, American single malt, sorry. Um, which, you know, 10 years ago would have been a real uphill battle. But uh, again, led by our illustrious leader, Steve Hawley, um, he's meeting with them regularly. And uh, there's only so far they can go so quickly because they have to check every single box when they're the federal government, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. With that, I will start on closing us out. But um, number one, Colin, you know, thank you again for coming on. Uh, let's talk about Cole Keegan single malt, uh, getting a little bit in on the gin there as well. Uh, I will be including links to all to the website, to all of your social media uh, on there. Um, in terms of distribution, you mentioned it briefly. Um, you've got local distribution, but uh, wider distribution as well through uh, through oh, nationwide exactly. partners as well through your website. Um, and I definitely encourage people to to try it to. You know, start with the orange label. I think it's the yeah, I would. it's going to be the most representative of, of what you guys do. And um, I will also be in touch with you because I'm working on a couple of projects with writing about American single malt and oh, great. just learning more about the category. Uh, and uh, let's see, last thing on there as well. If you reach this point in the episode and you're wondering, oh skipped a couple of basic things in there you know what's a single malt was this um there's going to be uh shortly after this episode goes live there will be an accompanying article in bourbon and banter all about santa fe spirits and cooking whiskeys to introduce a new category to american consumers and readers of the of that website so i assure you all tasting notes and questions will be answered and if there's anything else to be asked definitely hit up Hit up Colin on the email on visit Santa Fe Spirits when you're down in New Mexico. Yeah. Uh, so to close us out, Colin, where can people find you? You can find us as our, at our website, www.santafespirits.com. Us in Santa Fe, we have tasting rooms. Please come and see us again and visit visit your local tasting room. It doesn't have to be us in, in New Mexico. Go to any craft distiller. You can always email me. You might have noticed I don't mind talking and joining and talking about spirits. C-O-L-I-N at SantaFeSpirits.com. Do email me. It's a bit dangerous to send you email out over podcasts, but <laughs> I don't mind talking whiskey at all. And uh, David, thank you for people like yourself doing these podcasts have really made a big difference to us. It, it, it's very helpful to us. Thank you. I'm happy to help, happy to talk. And uh, sure, we'll have, we'll have you on again uh say a year's time or so when yeah. got some updates hopefully you got a category behind you at that point and we have some new things in the works but we'll save that for another day absolutely all right colin stay on with me for a sec after i finish recording okay. and it's another episode of the whispering podcast <laughs>